Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. If you're willing and able, why don't you stand? We're going to read God's Word together. Remind you that we are uh, going through a, uh, a book that you, we encourage you to purchase called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. We've got just uh, 15 copies left in the bookstore, but you can get it on Kindle as well. Apparently, um, they're printing more because it's selling out pretty quickly uh, across the country. So that's what we're doing. And uh, we're taking uh, a few chapters each week. And there's going to be moments when we're preaching through this uh, book and you're going to go, gosh, that sermon sounded a little bit like last week's. Well, the reason for that is we want to soak in this. We kind of want to stay long. Um, uh, in these uh, truths. So t- this morning we're going to talk about Christ's compassion, his intercession for us. Some selected uh, passages. This is the Word of God from Romans 5, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. From Hosea, my people are bent on turning away from me. How can I give you up? O Ephraim, how can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboyom? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy Ephraim, for I am a God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. I will not come in wrath. In Romans 8, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who it is that condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? And then Hebrews 7, consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Lord Jesus, would you take your word being read and your word being preached and would you indeed take it deep into our lives that it would change us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, are you a little dull? Are you dull? You a little bit blah? Kind of sleepy spiritually? You know, when 9-11 happened, we woke up. We woke up to pure evil, terrorist evil. It wasn't some far-off country. It was in our country. You know, COVID, 
You know, when COVID happened, we, you know, it was often another country. We never thought, many people never thought it would never be a pandemic in the U.S. But now it's right in our face. You know, what happened at the Capitol just over a week ago? I mean, it was shocking. I mean, that was our country. That was Washington. That wasn't people storming the gates of some embassy in another country. We woke up. We woke up, there's something wrong with us. My wife and I were uh, going on a walk in our neighborhood and uh, we came across some dogs that were loose, kind of hovering around this trash can. And as we got closer to the dogs, I told my wife, I said, it's gonna be okay. We're not in danger. The dogs will move as we get closer. We got a little closer. Dogs didn't move much. I said, it's okay. We got this. We're not in danger. We got a little closer. And then the dogs charged us. And I'm like total lockdown in fear. I mean, I could feel it in my whole body. And we turned and we ran. We were in danger. And I outran my wife easily. (laughs) But we woke up to the danger. Now, it's not just evil or danger that sometimes we have to wake up to. Sometimes it's beauty. You know, you're a young couple. You're expecting your first child. You're so excited about being a new parent. But when you hold that baby for the first time, you're woken up to goodness and beauty Jack Miller was a pastor in our denomination, and he said, there's two things you need to wake up to, and if you do, it'll totally change your life. He said, you need to wake up. You're more sinful than you can ever imagine. And then he said, you also need to wake up that you're more delighted in and beloved in in Christ than you could ever dream. So what is it going to take for us to wake up to the heart of Christ for his people? Well, it's going to take an encounter with his compassion. So take your sermon outline. Let's look at these passages together. First, compassion is abounding. Now, God is holy. And we know because he is holy, he hates sin. Now we can hardly fathom, we can hardly get our minds around the reality of the intensity of God's wrath that will come upon those who do not belong to Jesus. But it is also true that it's hard for us to get our minds around, to fathom, to wake up to the divine tenderness that is already resting on those who belong to him. His compassion has to stir us out of our slumber to see the heart of Christ. Paul says in Romans 5, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. 
where sin increased, where it was really, really bad, where it was despicable, ugly, evil, and shameful, where the most pure among us would look at it and say, that's obscene, right there, at that exact point, grace abounds. Grace leaps and runs and moves all the more. Now, we can feel like our transgression, our sinful thoughts, our words are diminishing God's grace. We can feel like our waywardness and our wickedness and our pride is shutting down his favor towards us. But Romans 5 says those sins and those failures are in fact where his heart, his grace is actually surging forward. When we sin, the very heart of Christ is drawn to us all the more. Now, some of you might be a little puzzled by that and pull back some. Because if Jesus is perfectly holy, and he is, I mean, doesn't he in some sense have to kind of withdraw from us? When we fail him again? I mean, when, um, when you sin against somebody else, and our sin is against Jesus, right? It's against him. When you sin against someone else or hurt someone else, don't they kind of pull back from you? I mean, don't you even expect them to be mad at you a little bit? His holiness finds sin revolting. But it is his holiness that also draws out his heart to help relieve and bring comfort. Now, for people who are not in Christ, his, their sin evokes his holy wrath. But for those in Christ, our sin evokes holy longing, holy love, and holy tenderness. I mean, think about Isaiah chapter 6. Let me just describe to you what's going on in that chapter. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah the prophet gets a vision of God on his holy throne in all of his majesty and his holiness. And it says that as God is on his throne, that the train of his robe fills the whole temple, representing the extent of his majesty and his holiness. Now, how big is just the train of his robe if it fills the temple? And then it says the angels are calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the foundations of the temple are shaking. And Isaiah says, woe is me. He declares an oracle of doom upon himself in the presence of the holiness of God. But what does God's holiness make happen in this moment? What moves towards Isaiah? Compassion. Mercy. Because an angel takes a hot coal and goes to him and takes away his guilt and his shame. Our sin... Our suffering moves God to deep compassion for us. The greater the misery, the more his compassion 
surges towards his beloved. Dane Ortland says this, If you are part of Christ's own body, your sins evoke his deepest heart, his compassion and pity. He sides with you against your sin, not against you because of your sin. He hates sin, but he loves you. When you consider the hatred a father has against a terrible disease afflicting his child, the father hates that disease while loving the child. Indeed, at the same some level, the presence of the disease draws out his heart to the child even more. Now, that's not a hypothetical situation for me. I have a child that has a disease. She has several palsy. And I hate several palsy. I hate what it does to her. But her cerebral palsy draws out my heart towards her all the more. Now, this does not, this truth does not ignore the disciplinary side of Christ. The Bible teaches that God disciplines those he loves. That in our sin and our waywardness, he disciplines us. And and we know that he doesn't truly love us unless he does discipline us. But even this is a reflection of his heart towards us. Because, you know, take this for example. When somebody hurts their body, hurts their arm or their leg, and they have to go to physical therapy. Physical therapy is hard. It's painful. But physical therapy is not punitive It's not done in anger. It's not for punishment. It is to bring healing. And such is the discipline of our Lord. Again, my daughter Sashi. Here's a picture of her. She has to do physical therapy all the time. And that picture on the left, I cannot tell you how hard that is for her to do. And sometimes she is sweating beads of sweat It is hard. But that therapist that's working with her, she loves her. She is bringing healing. Let's look at Hosea chapter 11 again. It says, my people are bent on turning away from me. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I cannot execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am a God, not a man, the Holy One in your midst. I will not come in wrath. It says, my people are bent on turning away from me. Rebellious, bent. God looks at his people in all of their filth and their failure. But look what the passage says. What is happening as God looks at us with our filth and our failure? What's happening inside his heart? It says, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I I can't give them up. 
Nothing could cause him to abandon us. And then look at this passage. This next one here. It says, I am a God and not a man. The Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. If you think about it, that's a little bit odd, the way that's phrased. I mean, is that what you would expect God to say? I mean, wouldn't you expect him to say, just change one word in that. Wouldn't you expect it to say this? I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. I will therefore come in wrath. That's what you would expect it to say. It's like you're at work and you blow it big time on the job. And the boss calls you into, your, into his office and he says, I am the boss. Therefore, you are fired. <laughs> you are gone. Clean out your desk. That's what you would expect him to say. But it's not. He says, I will not come in wrath. In Arlington, Texas, the police chased down a woman. She was caught shoplifting. They chased her down on the side of the road, caught her red-handed. She had stolen. She was a criminal. Now, what would you expect the police officer to do? You would expect him to do his duty. You would expect him to do what is actually the right thing to do. Arrest her, book her, and lock her up. Watch this video from his Vest cam. I'm just going to take a picture of this stuff. I'll, I'll head back there and I'll, I'm just going to pay for it. So you took everything? I just need to know what I need to pay for it. I'm not taking you to jail or anything. Yeah, okay. Here you go. Uh, let's do this. Um, let me get my phone. I'm going to take a picture of what's in here. And then we'll give you a ride to your tent. Because I don't want you walking in traffic. And then I'm going to head back there and take care of that for you, okay? Thank you. Okay, give me a second. So he's going to take a picture of what she stole. So he can go back to the store and pay for it. And then he's going to take her back to her tent. And if you watch it carefully, you can see she's kind of shaking. She's so afraid. I mean, it's so kind. But that's not what you would expect the officer to do, right? The heart of God. Now, what um, this, this truth that we're talking about, that, that his grace abounds towards us in our sin, what, what keeps us from getting this? I mean, what blocks us from getting this in a way that would actually change our lives? What makes us so dull to this truth? Well, it's this. It's our shame. It's our shame, and it's our efforts to cover our shame by our performance. This is what Henry Nouwen says. In a world that constantly compares people, ranking them as more or less intelligent, more or less attractive, more or less successful, it is not easy to really believe in a love that does not do the same. When I hear someone praised it is not hard to think of myself as less praiseworthy. 
When I read about the goodness and the kindness of other people, it is hard to wonder whether I myself am as good and kind as they. And when I see trophies and rewards and prizes being handed out to special people, I cannot avoid asking myself, why doesn't that happen to me? Now, why does that just ring so true? Why are we in that kind of quicksand a lot? Because we believe we need those trophies and those rewards and those prizes to cover our shame. Because we always feel like we're never enough. And our failures and our lack of performance often haunt us. Let me show you a picture. You know who that is? Everybody knows who that is. It's Michael Phelps. He's the most decorated Olympian of all time. Nobody has won more medals. He's accomplished. He's talented. He's applauded and praised for all of his accomplishments. I mean, you would think he would be the most validated, the most secure person in the world. I mean, who can argue with his success? Yet Michael Phelps has courageously told people that it's not enough. He struggles with self-loathing. He struggles with despair. It's not enough. Not enough to heal his brokenness and cover his shame. Years ago, I, uh, I was sitting with a woman in our church and, and she had cancer. And she was telling me, she says, I, you know, I'm going to fight this cancer and, and um, you know, I'm going I'm to be tough through this for Jesus. And, and I'm going to be a model Christian who walks through suffering. I'm going I'm to be exemplary as I do this. And, and, and I'm going to be a, a testimony to the Lord as I go through this cancer. And finally, I just said to her, no, no, you do not have to be the best Christian woman who ever, ever had cancer. You do not have to be awesome. You have a Savior. And you know what he wants from you? He wants you to go ahead and be a mess. Be broken. Be weak. Be his. And she, she just wept. She just wept with relief. I don't, I don't have to be awesome, she said. I said, no, he is awesome. The rest, the relief to realize deeply Christ's heart for us, our performance doesn't have to cover our sin and shame. A.W. Tozer says this. He says, religion has accepted the monstrous heresy that noise and size and activity and bluster makes a person dear to God. Do you know what makes you dear to God? Your need, your helplessness, and His grace. You know, no verse in the Bible, I think, has helped me more with my own self-loathing than uh, a verse in Luke chapter 15. It's where the prodigal son story is told and the prodigal son has sinned against his father and he has been rebellious and he has been bent on uh, this. And um, he, he comes to his senses and, and he's coming back home, but he has a plan. 
He has a plan to perform his way out of trouble. Here's what the verse says. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. He felt compassion. And he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. The father ran. He ran. He could not control himself. He could not control his heart. He ran. Now, in the ancient Near East, it would have been shameful for an old man to hike up his robes and to show his bare legs and to run. And if there had been boys in the village seeing this happen, they would have mocked the old man. Oh, look at the old man. Look at him run. The father shames himself because his heart is bursting towards his wayward son. When our sin increases, his grace abounds. He runs. Change your life. Second, compassion is to the uttermost, to the uttermost. What is, what is Jesus doing? What's he doing right now? You know, we think of Jesus way too often as like, well, he's this historical figure. And we just get together on Sundays and we talk about him as if he's in the past and doesn't exist. No, he lives right now. He reigns as king. But what's he doing right now. For many of us, our functional Jesus isn't doing anything right now. We think about the fact that everything he's done for us is in the past. He died for us. He rose. He paid for our sins. If you are in Christ, you are justified in him. Your justification, being made right with God, is something that was happened in the past, rooted in Christ's work for you. But what is he doing right now? The Bible says he is interceding for us. Justification is tied to what happened in the past. Intercession is what he is doing in the present. You see, Christ's heart for his people is steadily flowing through time. It's not like his heart was really big, you know, when he was on earth, when he was doing his work for us. His heart was big then, but now he's in heaven. It's kind of cooled off a bit. I mean, he's got, he's busy, all right? No, his heart continues and it's manifested for us in his constant interceding on our behalf before the Father. So the obvious question is, well, why? Why does he have to intercede for us If we are justified, why does he keep going to the Father on our behalf? Is the Father somehow not quite satisfied? Is the Father somehow not sure that we're doing well enough? This is what Ortland says. The Son's intercession does not reflect the Father's coolness, but the sheer warmth of the Son. Christ does not intercede because the Father's heart is tepid towards us, but because the Son's heart is so full towards us. The Father's deepest delight is to say yes to the Son's pleading on our behalf. 
So our redemption has been accomplished in the past. Accomplished in intercession is the moment by moment application of his atoning work. In fact, the New Testament takes our justification and it weds it right connects it to our his intercession. Look at Romans 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who it is that condemns. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that was raised. Justification. Who is at the right hand who is indeed interceding for us. So intercession is Jesus constantly hitting the refresh button of the gospel as it applies to every little place in our lives. You see, Christ's intercession for us is deeply personal in our ongoing struggle in life. It's like this. It's like an older brother going to the track meet of his younger brother. And and even if the younger brother in the race that he is running, even if he's way out in front and he's clearly going to win the race, what does the older brother do seeing his brother way out in front? He doesn't just sit back and go, oh, he's got this. I'm, you know, I don't need to cheer anymore. Hey, good job, bud. No, no, no. No, the older brother all the more is cheering for his brother. Come on, go. He's encouraging. He's affirming, shouting. He's running along the fence, cheering for him. So is your older brother, Jesus. We do not have an austere Savior. No. He is red-faced with joy, shouting, encouraging us in every race that we run, in every sorrow we encounter, so that he might press the gospel deeper into us. Look at Romans 7 again. Consequently... He is able to save to the uttermost, to those who draw near. Draw near is important. To those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. See that? It says he lives for it. You know, sometimes you hear people say they live for things or it's being described. Oh, that guy, he lives for football. (laughs) Or, Or he lives to go fishing. You know, it's like that's what he just lives to do. He can't get enough of it. You know, my wife, um, she's really talented, but she really needs me. You see, my wife, uh, she can get so excited about something that she's doing that she will forget to eat and drink. And I'll be like, have you, have you drinking any water today? Have you eaten lunch at all? She just gets so excited about what she's doing. That's your Savior. Interceding for you is his food and it is drink. He lives for it. Hebrews 7 also says that he saves us to the uttermost. Uttermost means comprehensively in in completeness. We are uttermost sinners and we need a Savior to the uttermost. You know, all of us have um, ugly stuff in our lives. All of us have parts of our story that are really just dark places. And there's, everybody has times in their lives, and, and some more often than others, we just we struggle to believe that God could actually forgive us. 
that he actually could have a face of love towards us. That we, we struggle, we just think God's got this scowl on his face all the time. Here's what Ortland says. God's forgiving, redeeming, restoring touch reaches down into the darkest crevices of our souls. Those places where we are most ashamed, most defeated. More than this, those crevices of sin are themselves the places where Christ loves to go the most. His heart willingly goes there. His heart most strongly is drawn there. He knows us to the uttermost, and he saves us to the uttermost because his heart is drawn out to us to the uttermost. We cannot sin our way out of his tender care. You just can't. He goes there. He moves there. During the first day of an introduction speech class, the old professor was going around the room, having the students introduce themselves by answering two questions. What do you like about yourself? What do you not like about yourself? Nearly hiding in the back of the room was Dorothy. Her long hair, red hair, hung down around her face, almost obscuring it from view. When it was Dorothy's turn to introduce herself, there was only silence in the room. Thinking perhaps she had not heard the question, the professor moved his chair over near hers and gently repeated the question. Again, only silence. Finally, with a deep sigh of exhaustion, Dorothy sat up in her chair. She pulled back her hair and in the process revealed her face. Covering nearly all one side of her face was a large, irregular-shaped birthmark, nearly as red as her hair. That, she said, that is what I don't like about myself. Moved with compassion, the godly professor leaned over, gave her a big hug, and then he kissed her on the birthmark and said, That's okay, honey. God and I think you're beautiful. She started to weep. Her classmates gathered around her. And through the tears, she said, no one has ever touched me there on my face. Not even my parents would touch it. The ugly places in our lives, he is drawn to the most. He most willingly goes there to bring his compassion. Now, I want us to take a vote, okay? We're going to vote on something. If you were going through a hard time in your life of any kind, just going through something hard, and you got to pick which of the pastors to pray for you, right? So you get to pick which pastor. So if we had Michael Puckett up here, all right? Stephen Speaks and Brandon and Ray and then me. We're all lined up here on the stage. And let's even say we got Chad back from St. Louis. 
And these pastors are lined up here, and you get to pick which one of them is going to pray for you. I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, none of the above, I want Robin. (laughs) You know, all the time, as a pastor, we pray for people that are in need that are struggling, that are hurting. I call them on the phone and pray for them on the phone. I, call, I go to their house. I go to the hospital. We pray for people in need. And I cannot tell you the number of times people will say to me a week later, a month later, Pastor, thank you so much. When you prayed for me, your words sunk deep. It just meant so much to me that you prayed for me. It was so, it was so healing to me. What is Jesus doing right now? Robert Murray McShane says this. If you could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, if I I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet, distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. I had a woman come out to me last night. She said, this has blown my mind. She said, I'm not good at praying. My prayers are never very good. But the pressure's off now, she said, because now I know his prayers are strong for me. She says, you have no idea how this liberates me to pray. She goes, I can actually start praying like a child and not have it all together. The passage in Hebrews says this. It says that he always lives to do so. Always, always, always means he is relentless to do so with joy, never letting up with his vibrant compassion towards us day after day after day. I want you to watch this little video and don't don't look at the subtitles. Just watch the little girl. Watch this. And I know it's gonna be a lovely day. I mean, she is relentless. I mean, her joy to run to her brother every day after school, there is no diminishing. Her joy doesn't let up one bit. It seems like it seems to grow each day. And that was probably 15 days in a row there throughout the seasons, running every day, every day, every day. Gosh, I wish that you would get that. I wish you'd understand that's the heart of your Savior. That he's running to you. That he's running to the Father on your behalf. He is relentless in his joy to intercede for you. That is what Jesus is doing right now. It's a beautiful thing to wake up to the heart of Jesus for his people. Amen.
Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org. Thank you.